All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 20 Questions here. Today, I have Pat Quilter of um, Quilter Amplification, Amplifiers, and then also you might know him from QSC. He's done some really uh, great stuff over the years, and it's an honor to have you on, Pat. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, This is great. Yeah, let's, let's, let's kick into it. So I always... I always start the 20 questions with more of a statement of how I first heard of the person that I'm talking to. And it would have to be, I heard of your products through QSC. Um, I used to build some sound systems and stuff back in the, probably the late nineties. I remember the first band I was in that got serious. We bought our own system. We had some QSC power amps. So that was like the first products. And then, um, I guess I heard of you personally through a friend of mine, Mason Stoops, did some uh, video work on some products you've done. And then uh, in the last recent years, your booth at NAM, and I uh, saw you strolling around a few times. So, but yeah, I've never got to meet you, but I'm glad to connect with you here. So, yeah, let's just jump right into it. So question number one is, um, do you first remember when music caught your attention? Um, the... Um... I got to say, my uh, my mother in particular uh, always sort of had music in the house, and uh, uh, we had one of those little kitty phonographs uh, that looks kind of like a ham can with a tone arm on it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and she would give us her old seventy eights when they were done with them, and we had some little you know kid records as well. So uh, yeah, even when I was like, like as far back as I can remember. Um, uh, two, three, four years old, uh, I could, you know, play records and, you know, and, uh, color on them with crayons and watch the shavings curl up and, uh, have all kinds of fun. That's super cool. Do you, you remember the first album that you bought with your own money? Uh, yeah, let me think now. Yes, I do. And this, uh, so growing up, I was exposed to a lot of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, yeah, my mom liked show tunes and you know Broadway yeah. musicals and that sort of stuff. So um, some, and of course, I had many a um, uh, you know uh, wasted hour as a kid watching little black and white cartoons on our early TV set. So I had a fondness for that kind of tinkly uh, uh, '30s type music. Yeah. And um, in um, somebody put out a um, LP in 1958 or so of silent movie music, you know, piano, and I just thought that was great. And I, uh, I heard it on the radio and I managed to track down what it was. And my uncle took me to the local record store and, and I gave him a little, you know, childish description. They said, I imitated a bit of the music like I just did. And he said, Oh yeah, you must be thinking of this. And he hauls out this, LP, which must have just arrived, called you know silent movie music, and uh, there it was. So I, uh, I had saved up my allowance and uh, I splurged on this LP. That's super cool. Yeah, the silent uh, silent movie music is cool. We've been we've been filing through some of that for a promotional thing we're going to do later on. It's actually really great music if you pay attention to it and listen to it. It's really cool. A lot of it is, yeah. Um. So when did you realize you would be doing what you're doing now as a career? I know your career has evolved from 
getting into, you know, power amplifiers, early guitar amplifiers. Now you're, you know, uh, probably equally as well known for the new quilter amps and stuff. But like, when did, uh, you know, what was that like for you when you got into a position of this is how you make your living and it became a career? Like, well, when did you realize uh, that? as they always like to say, there's a time and a place for everything. And that place is college. So yeah. um, so there I was at the University of Rochester, which is uh, upstate New York, um, a rather bleak location for someone that had just um, come from uh, Honolulu, as it happens. Um, the um, uh, My pop was in the um, Marine Corps, so we got moved around every couple or three years. Okay. And I was able to go to high school in Honolulu, which was, you know, very nice. And uh, one thing happened there that, you know, I'll never forget. Um, in the early 60s, you know, top 40 radio music entered a period of, uh, for me as a kid, very um, stale, overproduced, uh, you know, pablum. Um, basically, I just had the feeling that, you know, the producers who were pushing this stuff out on the radio must have thought, the kids, zealous and anything. Um, and then out of the blue came some uh, groups our age, like the Beach Boys and uh, Jan and Dean, and then uh, shortly thereafter, the Beatles. And all of these groups were, you know, like they were, sounded like people our age making music we yeah. liked about things we were interested in. And this was, this was revolutionary. And, you know, uh, it's taken for granted now, but at the time, this was uh, unheard of. And of course, this was the beginning of the uh, of the uh, huge uh, counterculture music wave. So, uh, but that was basically just laying the foundation. Um, when I went into college, I was still uh, most interested in. You know, I had always been interested in mechanical things growing up. So I thought, you know, I would take physics and then engineering, and uh, and then I just kind of discovered electronics, kind of on the side. Um, but I remembered a few elements of electronics from my high school physics class, and I started experimenting. And the next thing you know, I was putting together little two-watt amplifiers from radio, car radio schematics and uh, experimenting with things you could buy at the uh, you know, basically the equivalent of Radio Shack. And, um, and before you knew it, I was slowly flunking out of college because I was interested in teaching myself electronics. Um, so by 1967, I was, uh, came out to California to, um, go to Cal State College as, and I, um, my brother's, uh, my younger brother was starting a high school band and his bass player couldn't afford a name brand amp. So we ended up, I ended up building him one for what he had saved up, which was a, a whopping 250 bucks. And um, and we ended up making this hundred watt bass amp that I had to make you know build everything twice before it would work. But mm -hmm. I think I still made about three cents an hour on that. Um, but that was the first uh, we called it a quilter sound thing, and um, that was my first. Uh, I've uh, read about that. Yeah, high power amp, and then uh, uh, the summer rolled around, and I thought, well, why you know take some you know meaningless job washing dishes or something? Why not? I'll build a few more of these now that I know what I was doing. How hard could it be? Hoo-ha. And, um, and uh, one thing led to another, and, you know, it was um, 
would be some few years before we would really be on our feet, but I was um, putting myself into the guitar amp business. That's that's really cool. Is there, you know, looking back um, where you are, you know, a long career really established and you've done a lot of great things. Was there a, would you say there's a defining moment that got you to where you are? Is there something you could share that maybe sticks out to you? You know, it's kind of like a life full of different roads and taking turns. But was there was there one defining moment that kind of stands out? Um, in a way, um, I will have to say this. Um, one of the things that, um, you know, sort of cemented my decision to, you know, become an equipment supplier for for rock amp for rock amplification. Uh, my um, younger brother, uh, Matt Quilter, who's the pro musician in our family, um it showed me this album by this guy, Jimi Hendrix. And um, yeah. I wasn't quite, I wasn't really ready for this at the time. This would have been uh, late 67. And he said, you got to listen to this. And he put it on and I listened for a bit. I said, boy, what? Well, this is just noise. What does this guy think he's doing? Uh, then as uh, things yeah. rolled along, I indulged in my uh, first uh, <clears throat> illegal herb and uh, um, I listened to it again. And it was a whole new thing. And uh, honestly, you know, um, if uh, if I hadn't have uh, you know gotten stoned with all my other friends that that was going on that time, I don't think I would have listened to music the same way, and I probably wouldn't have gotten into high energy rock amplification because you know you just didn't really get it um, until until that experience. So that so you kind of made a, a turn there with obviously uh, you know the style of where things were going, but you, you feel like that had a major impact on well, the direction you went with really your circuits did and because, your sound. You know, as a as a nerd growing up, I, I you know I knew I would probably end up in some sort of technical career, but I just imagine I would have ended up at you know Lord knows what some defense company or yeah. Um, uh, or you know, uh, my mom always thought I would I would have uh, done well at Mattel, the toy company, and that would have been interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. But the whole music thing and getting involved in audio amplification, um, you know, really kind of traced back to this revolutionary time in high energy music. And uh, I never really saw myself as someone that could take the stage. But, you know, I thought it would be cool to be sort of the power behind the throne, so to speak. Yeah, I, I so I'm I'm a I'm a whippersnapper born in 82 and uh, I got into guitar through a lot of 90s bands um, like the grunge movement and stuff. And I often huge fan of classic rock and appreciate it more than anything I've heard modern in a long time. And I always am fascinated with I love history as well and people's stories, which is why I do this. Uh, podcast, but I, it's always been a fascination of mine to what were those, the sixties through 75, like, you know, I just think 59 through 75 is such a musical moment that just insane uh, historically. And it's cool to, to hear how that impacted you. It was really, you know, a once in a lifetime turning point in our whole Literally, society. Yeah. When you think about it, I mean, um, up until, you know, you know, white suburban kids started, you know, getting stoned and and doing other drugs. Yeah, it was an underground thing, you know, uh, something that maybe happened in sleazy, you know, joints in the, you know, big cities or whatever. But 
when it became, you know, something everyone was doing, it really changed the the vibe. And, uh, you know, and, and I don't know if there'll ever be another period of musical and cultural revolution like we saw then, where really within the span of a few years, it went from crew cuts and, you know, kind of, you know, you know, un, un, unreflective assumptions about the integrity of our government and whatnot to questioning everything. And, you know, some of that um, questioning and, you know, throwing out of old standards, you know, some of it hasn't served us well, but a lot of it has resulted in the society we have today where we're, you know, still struggling, but we're at least recognizing you know that diversity and right. and gender and race shouldn't be limiting factors in what people get to do and i can only i mean i trace that back to the 60s and we were you know yeah we had our own blind spots and a lot of the you know sort of revolutionary movements were still very you know male centric and whatnot but it started the ball rolling and it basically taught a generation that, you know, you didn't have to do things just like the last generation did. You could really try something new. And, uh, and yeah, you can get off into, uh, I think, very pointed and powerful political analysis about basically how Nixon ruined everything. Uh, but um, it was the start of a, you know, of an arc that's just sort of coming to fruition yeah, as we speak. It's just a huge time. I'm with you. I don't know if there'll ever be another time like that. So that's really interesting. Let's let's switch gears here a little bit. So I always bring up my favorite work of someone. So, I'm man, I've probably owned more of your products than I realize, especially with power amplification and stuff like that. So recently... Um, well, not recently, probably for two years, we've been using your uh, tone block. Uh, every JHS pedal is quality controlled through a tone block. And I got one probably, we've probably been using it since 2013, and it stays on like 24 hours a day. And it's had over, I mean, we're talking like possibly 200,000 pedals tested through it. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So that amp really impressed me. And then I got a pro block that I use and um, use it with other stuff. And I've just been so impressed with that whole series. Could you tell us about just how did that happen? What led you to that platform? I really enjoy it. And I think in a world of 50 billion guitar amps, they are really unique and really useful. They're not just unique, like to be unique, they're unique in a very useful way. And um, I'd love to hear like how that all came about. Okay. Um, well, it's, we got to run the Wayback machine, you know, back to my first stab at this in the late sixties. So, um, you know, um, so here I had the ambition to get into the guitar amp business. And there was a golden opportunity for about a year or two um, where, you know, people like Hendrix and Clapton were starting to systematically explore the 
you know the properties of overdrive and uh, um, and other you know just just how loud can you go? And right. the uh, existing amps either didn't sound good played that way, or wouldn't take the power and would blow up, or both. <laughs> and to me, it was you know seemed like a pretty straightforward engineering problem. I mean, if you've got a you know, an eighteen-wheeler truck. You know, it's just designed to to run pedal to the metal all day long, and you know, mm-hmm. you size everything accordingly, and it should be capable of you know long-term service that way. Um, now, the um, of course, at the this point in time, everything was going solid state. You know, all this all this tube stuff that was all all old school 50s stuff everything was getting transistorized so of course i just naturally started in doing solid state amplifiers Um, but i could tell right off that they were lacking in some properties and i kind of made it my mission to figure out you know how to get a modern technology amp to sound like you know the classic amps um they're classic to us now, but at the time... Well, what, uh, not to interrupt, but what was the first solid-state stuff you saw coming out? What would that have been? Who took the plunge into that with guitars? There were some early... Uh, in the, there was a Silvertone amp, a Sears amp, a 75-watt thing. It was really supposed to be more of a bass amp. Uh, there was all kinds of little cheesy harmony amps and whatnot that... You know, the you know, um, they'd obviously seen an opportunity to cut costs by eliminating tubes and just using a few transistors. So it was more like student level stuff coming out, like catalog. There were those, and then uh, we were just starting to see them out here on the coast, but the uh, custom tuck and roll amps, uh, those were always oh, solid yeah. state, and they had a pretty good clean sound, but they didn't do overdrive well at all. Um, um, and then there was the early Fender ser- uh, solid state series. I think it was the Zodiac series, which was an unmitigated disaster. Um, they didn't sound good and they didn't hold up. Uh, they didn't really know how to build solid state at that point. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, teething problems that have been documented by other researchers. Um and then there were the Vox, the American Vox amps uh, made by uh, Thomas Organ, who, um, you know, licensed the right to distribute Vox in, in, in America. And the English Vox people thought, oh, well, we'll, just, we'll be sending them tons of our nice tube amps to, re, you know, resell in America. But um, Thomas Organ had other ideas and said, oh, no, no, we don't want your tube amps. We'll make our own solid state amps under this name we've licensed. And so um, all the, you know, the Vox Super Beetle and all the American solid state amps came out, which actually weren't bad sounding uh, um, and did a little bit of overdrive, but they were really kind of meant to be more clean. So, uh, um, and then there was the acoustic amps uh an la company that had uh um, 120 watt heads sitting on top of a couple of altec 15s and this little bullhorn thing and boy were those loud and they were very harsh and uh um uh you know again if, if you you could push them to the point of breakup but it wasn't pretty at all and that was sort of the, you know, the setting, if you will. And That's cool so to hear. I, was, yeah, I just wanted some backstory there. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, my mission was to try to make 
a solid state amp that had some warmth to it and would do overdrive well. And one thing I probably, to my best of my knowledge, kind of invented along the way was a master volume control. So you could get preamp overdrive and turn down a volume knob and get that sound at any volume level. Uh, we were doing that in 68, and I didn't see it on anybody else's stuff for several years. So that might have been one of um, my little inventions. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, again, because it, to me it was obvious that you know overdrive was a whole second half of the potential of electric guitar. Um, and when you think about it, you know, the natural sound of a guitar, you know, it's a twang. It, you know, you pluck the tone, it goes bang, and then it dies away. Um, and that's very limiting. Um, and Les Paul, with his solid body guitar, was seeking to extend the sustain and, and did so. Um, but it still ultimately tended to die away. It was, you know, it was a plucked rather than a continuous tone. Yeah. But once people were cranking up loud enough to get feedback, they could get sustained tones like a horn player or an organ, you know, um, and they could make them, you know, uh, modulate and, you know, go into overtones. I mean, there was this whole new world of experimentation. And it today it's considered, you know, kind of a standard part of the guitar repertory. But back then this was all you know, heady new stuff, you know, and uh, every week somebody was doing something new and astonishing and, and you know, and of course all the kids wanted to, you know, jump on that and, and do it too. And uh, so they were, um, you know, talking their, you know, moms and dads into buying them Fender guitars and, you know, um, showman amplifiers and all kinds of fun stuff. But um, meanwhile, you know, we were soldiering away in this little, you know, um, you know, 20 foot storefront thing in, you know, the cheap side of Costa Mesa, uh, just trying to, you know, get an amp out that would sound good, you know, do overdrive and not blow up. And um, it was not, despite my confidence that this didn't seem, didn't seem like that hard of a problem. And it, uh, it was some years before we could count on our stuff not to have about a 25% failure rate. Seemed like if if they made it through the first day or two, they would pretty much go forever. But uh, we had an embarrassing number of them. I would test them, you know, well, it seems to be working. Give it to somebody to play, and they'd come back the next day. It just died, you know. I'd give them another wow. one. Oh, this one's great. It's, you know, we played it all weekend. Never, never, you know, missed a beat. So um, um, one of those... You know, mysteries of early solid state. I think some of the power transistors just weren't quite right or something. Um, but along the way, I built a few tube amps to kind of see what the deal was, because people kept telling us, you know, your stuff is pretty good, but it's not as good as my favorite whatever. And so I built a few tube amps, and I said, well, you know, yeah, I see that what they're doing here. There's some interesting things going on. And, uh, you know, but, um, you know, we could... We could design um, solid-state circuitry to do the same thing. And it was just about that point in the early 70s when we made a strategic decision to get out of guitar amps because we'd missed the boat, basically. Um, Marshall had fixed their reliability problems. Um, 
you know, several other companies, you know, were coming up. You know, I think Mesa Boogie had just gotten their start. Um, their uh, PV had entered the scene at unheard of low prices with, you know, solid yeah. state stuff. It wasn't great, but it worked and it, you know, was was, you know, it was rugged, you know, it, it would play loud all night long. And uh, and so uh, that was the point at which we sort of made a strategic decision that we needed to go into something a little steadier. And uh, uh, that was the beginning of QSC audio. And we chose power amps as our initial field because that was the hardest part to get right in the guitar amps. And we figured that there was at least some hard-won knowledge we could exploit there to, um, you know, to bring to a, a yeah. you know, a business where you could sort of, another thing, we, we kind of need something you could sell on paper. Um, you know, an amp, a, a power amp's a power amp. It has so many watts, you know, it's supposed to be clean and, and you know, hopefully they don't break down. And, um, one, and you know, we fairly quickly, at this point, we did kind of know what we were doing circuit-wise. So we managed to get fairly reliable products going and worked our way up from there as QSC Audio. And basically left the guitar amp sort of laying there uh, just as I was about. I made one last design for, uh, it was the original AC-powered pig nose. And I did a design for them which incorporated some of the uh, learnings from the tube amp experiments and uh, left that with them. And, and they ran with it and I think... Paul Rivera did some upgrades on it later on, and uh, that was a fairly successful series for them, and uh, and got a you know got some reputation as you know a good a better than average solid state emulation of a tube amp. Wow, that's that's a loaded, fascinating story. That is so cool. How, so out of everything you've done, you just keep naming things, and you you've had your hand in a lot of stuff. I mean, it's no small feat to say possibly the you know the first master volume on an amp and i've even to my knowledge did you i think you even were the first to channel switch an amp if that's correct something like that um not that i not that i would say we okay uh, i mean think someone had told me that so no i can't mouth. claim anything there you know all that sort of stuff started happening after we were out of the guitar amp business um gotcha uh but basically i can take some credit for just Really working on overdrive as a as a tone, you know, yeah, if you will. That's um, great, and um, and that's where we were kind of at in the last days of yeah. our of our original quilter amps. Yeah. So out of all that stuff and all the history up to date, what are you most proud of? Well, one thing I will say, you know, that you know this formative period of you know high energy rock, you know, involved a lot of equipment breakdowns, um, both mm -hmm. of our stuff and other people's stuff. And it left me with a very strong feeling that, you know, whatever we did, it had to go the distance, you know, that, you know, the last, you know, the last thing anyone wants on stage is to have their equipment, you know, die on them and let them down. Right. Um, and it had to go the distance and it had to do, and it had to, you know, it had to, um, be there for them, you know, had to be a faithful partner. And so even when we were in the power amp business, which is basically, you know, a matter of making, you know, well-protected, 
clean, reliable, pro-audio power amps, which are basically just right. heavy-duty hi-fi amps. I always made sure that you could push them to the point of overdrive, and they wouldn't gag or you know or drop out on you, and they would, you know, they would give you everything they got without um, without stopping or blowing up. And uh, that was kind of the you know I mean that's the heart of QSC's reputation for reliability is that you know we push the stuff to the limit and beyond and then deal with every single failure we can possibly identify, you know, before we put that stuff out there. That's, that's great. Do you have any advice on, uh, you know, like how do you get in the mood to create? Like you have any, you have any advice, tips or tricks? Well, how does it work for you? And maybe you, you sit down, I've seen some pictures of you on Instagram designing some stuff, you know, how does that process work for you? How do you get in the mood to do it? Um, it sort of starts with, a problem or a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think if I can think of a good example. Well, uh, one of my legitimate aha moments in power amp design, um, I'm going to have to get a little technical here for a minute, but right. um, power transistors still get hot, so they have to be uh, mounted on heat sinks. <clears throat> but typically right. they have to be insulated from the heat sinks. So the insulation interferes with heat transfer, and so there's always this trade-off between getting adequate insulation and still keeping them cool enough, you know, keeping them at the temperature of the heat sink. Um, yeah. Uh, I was, you know, and and this insulation often tended to get a little loose over time, so you would you'd have something that worked for the first year or two, and then when you looked at them in five years, but my goodness, all the screws have kind of backed out a little and, you know, the insulation, you know, the thermal contact is degraded and, you know, uh, no wonder this thing failed. Um, so this was a kind of a notable problem and I was thinking of a solution to it and um, it occurred to me, I won't, um, you know, skip over some of the details, but this circuit uh, topology came to me where the metal case of the transistor could be grounded and then what would normally be the power supply would normally be, be, be the, the thing that would be grounded. If I let that float, then I could screw the transistors directly to the heat sinks and they would be, uh, it would not only be easier to manufacture without fiddling with the little insulators and stuff, but it would be a better connection. They'd be, yeah. you know, pretty much, you know, mated right to the heat sink. And that uh, grounded collector design was the mainstay of a lot of our, you know, uh, mid-series QSC amps. Uh, the 1400, the Series 1, the uh, USA Series. And even after we uh, graduated to our... Uh, our lightweight amps, the Powerlight series and PLX amps that have active power supplies, uh, we didn't. We still used a version of that circuit where the heat sinks were could be mounted in free air, so they weren't grounded, but they still were directly coupled to the transistors, and uh, that was a big part of our of our practical reliability. Yeah, so a problem turned into a solution, and. Yeah, that's some of the that's some great stuff. Yeah, so you know, um, I mean, typically I would yeah, say, you know, I would contemplate a situation. Um, uh, well, like right now, for instance, uh, I get um, you know I've been sort of drawn into this community theater thing, 
in Laguna Beach, and they want yeah. me to do a uh, a parody of a classic Hawaiian song, and I can play some lap steel guitar. So I'm going to play my guitar and sing this goofy song. But I need an amp I can bring out on stage and then take off with a minimum of hassle. So I'm making myself a nice little battery-powered amp that will really play. And uh, so, you know, um, problem, solution, you know, and, uh, and then use my skills to address that. And, um, and, you know, that may turn into a commercial product in the fullness of time. Yeah, that's great. Um, here's a question. If, if you could sit down with um, a hero over lunch, dead or alive, who would you want to sit down with? That's, uh, I mean, there, of course, there's so many. I mean, I've mm-hmm. always said, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, I mean, when you think of what, you know, people like Thomas Edison and Tesla accomplished, you know, back in the day when everything was hand-drawn and if you wanted a prototype, you had to, you know, make it on a machine, you know, you had to get a, you know, yeah. work on a lathe and, you know, um, a blacksmith forge or something, Um uh, uh, I mean, those guys would be uh, fascinating. Um, um, and uh, it would be, it would be, you know, I have the utmost respect for what Leo Fender accomplished. Uh, I mean, when you look at, you know, the classic, you know, blackface generation tube amps, I mean, there's no smarter way to build a tube amp than the way those are put together. They're, you know, yeah. they're elegantly laid out. They're... They're very serviceable. Uh, we had a baseman come in. A guy said, "You know, I'm fifty bucks short of you know of buying one of your early one of our early Quilter Sound amplifiers. Would you take this beat up baseman and trade?" And he said, "Well, okay." He said, "You know, it's um, you know, it, you might be able to use it for parts. It fell out a second story window, and it's just all smashed to heck." And, and I said, well, you know, sure. We just want to make the sale, you know. So, uh, right. And so he gave us this basement uh, that was literally like a banana. You know, it was like broken in half. And uh, and I looked at uh-huh. it and went, well, you know, the the cabinet is busticated, but we sort of, you know, we took the chassis out and we flattened out the top of the cabinet and put a thin sheet of wood on the inside and glued it up and. The Tolex didn't tear, so it looked okay. And then I looked at the chassis. Well, it was kind of bent, but I, you know, you looked at the wiring. Well, it was all you know, flexible wiring to that um, fiber, uh-huh. you know, kind of circuit board like thing. Well, nothing had pulled loose or cracked. So I said, you know, let me just sort of stomp this back out flat again. And all the power tubes had broken, so we just put in four new tubes, and that thing came right on and played. We could have put new tubes in the way it was, and it would have played. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That is yeah. what I call great American design. You know that right, something right. can be literally smashed, and it still could work. That's that's amazing. Yeah, what he did is no small feat. I have the most respect as well. That that's that's really cool. So, has there ever been a time when uh, you'd say you almost walked away from this career? You know the amplifier thing like just oh getting yeah out of it. you know i mean there were many low spots i mean we were technically broke a number of times especially in those early years uh where you know um we were underwater you know nobody seemed to nobody was buying the stuff you know 
Um, uh, there was one time we had just we had the, we used to have this problem with a boom and bust cycle. Um, if people were coming into our little showroom, we were busy showing them the amps, and you know they would spend an hour or two going through the stuff, and 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 so I you know and of course that meant I wasn't in the back building amps. So we would typically you know sell what we had on the floor over a period of maybe a couple of weeks. And then we wouldn't mm-hmm. have anything because I wouldn't I'd be spending all my time selling, not building. And then we'd start building. Then we didn't have anything in the showroom, so people stopped coming because there was nothing to look at. So then yeah. I had time to build, but by the time I got new stuff built, nobody was coming because... You know. It's like a vicious cycle, yeah. Right. So we had just built a nice showroom full of stuff. We had a, a few of everything, and we were thinking, all right, it's December, it's... We're here. Let's let's crank up a big month here, and oh, during the night, um, thieves cut a hole in the roof and dropped down inside oh, and cleaned us out. And to add insult to injury, we had a box of Ernie Ball strings as just a kind of a little, you know, money maker on the side. They didn't just grab the box and run. They cherry picked all the good strings and left us with the ones nobody wanted. I mean, we just thought that was like, come on, fellas. Wow. <laughs> that, anyway, that's, yeah, that that's was a low, low spot, but uh, but we we pulled through. Um, and yeah. yeah, there were a few other times when you figure, you know, is this really going to be worth it? But uh, the fear of having to go and get a real job always kind of kept me, you know, on right. on, on deck. So um, uh, so we would. You know, and I had a couple of very good partners who we supported each other through these low times and had a lot of good strategic talks about, you know, okay, what can we do about this? And, uh, and so, you know, we, we, we soldiered on and, uh, I can say, you know, you know, the main thing we did was we went the distance, um, and, you know, we paid attention as we went along and we tried to do the smart thing and always treat people well and, you know, look to the long run, but uh, um, just uh, much to be said for just putting one foot in front of the other. Right, right. What would you say, you probably had a lot, I mean, over the years, I can't even imagine how many times someone said, hey, I want to get into this, I want to build amps, I want to do a business or whatever. What do you say to people? How do you how do you encourage them or vice versa, whatever, when, when you get approached? I want to be like you, basically, you know? What do you say there? Um, that is a kind of a tough one because I've often said if I had known what I was getting into up front, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> right. You know, you get sucked in and then you you just want to like, you know, see it through, you know. Um, and uh, um, so there's something to be said for, uh, you know, blissful ignorance. I mean, Logically, yeah. you should try to pencil out some sort of business plan, which I always sort of had something in my head. You know, if we can, you know, I built an amp for my brother's friend for 250 bucks, and I barely broke even on it. But I had to buy everything twice because I didn't know what I was doing. Well, gee, if I just bought everything once, I could make 50% on the deal. That seemed like a reasonable, you know, I mean, yeah. like, you know, it seemed like you could do something with that. And, you know, one thing led to another. And, of course, once you start into business, you encounter all kinds of expenses you didn't anticipate. Um, But, you know, but I always had the feeling, you know, if we, you know, if we built a good product and met a need, you know, people would buy them. And um, as long as we 
you know, try to make them as, you know, as simply and directly as possible, we could make money on the deal and still pr- provide good stuff at a fair price. Um, yeah. So, you know, having some idea of a business plan, I think, is is critical. Um, but mostly it's it's all I mean, I would have to say, you know, you couldn't stop me from wanting to make stuff. And when I see people today that have that kind of passion, they're going to do something that's going to be something uh, because yeah. they have just got, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, you can see some certain musicians or performers. They've just got that that wattage, you know, that desire to, you know, be on stage and do something awesome uh, or maybe do something awesome, you know, in a recording environment or whatever. But, you know, kind of do something that's never been done and make, you know, and, and you know, and make it something that they did. Um, you know, it's a human desire. And uh, yeah, um, heaven knows we have so many more, you know, there's so much more knowledge available today than there was, you know, back in my day when if it wasn't in a book, you had to pretty much figure it out yourself. No, yeah, it's, that's fascinating and very good advice. So, um, you know, if if Pat Quilter hadn't have ended up getting into electronics and and getting bit by that bug, what do you think he'd be doing right now? Well, probably because I'm, you know, 70, I'd be retired from some <laughs> mundane, you know, technical um, job. Yeah. Uh, um, I would like to think that I wouldn't have ended up designing guidance systems for missiles or something, you know, yeah. uh, totally um, military industrial complex. I probably actually would have been kind of interesting um, to have a career at some place like Mattel, um, you know. I mean, we all like toys. Um, yeah, but hard to say. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's hard to think back. What would I have done? You know, yeah, it's almost impossible. But it's just fun to think about. If you, um, if you could jump in the DeLorean and go <laughs> back in time for one full day, you pick the day. You just want to see something in history. What would you want to see? Um, it's another good one. Um, so much to choose from, uh, uh, but I will have to say uh, the uh, you know there was a period in the early twenties when you know California was a leader in the good roads movement, and there were okay. times when they just laid down fresh concrete to places like the, you know up the coast or um, you know um, you know the ridge route or places like that that were must have been wonderful adventures to. Uh, Hit, 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 you know, jump in your Model T and hit the road and, you know, see where you end up um, before the, you know, traffic got so bad. That's a fascinating thought. Yeah. I've never, you don't think about that much, but the first roads like that and what that had to be like and before the 405 was dominating. Yeah. yeah. That's, and, you know, that's really and cool. there was a golden age of the freeway here in California. I mean, yeah. in the 60s and 70s, uh, if you had to go, you know, 60 miles to some place, you'd say, oh, I'll see you in an hour because you could pretty much count on making a mile a minute on the freeways. And uh, yeah. I'm afraid those days are behind behind us, as you will have noticed that if is, you were traveling yes. around to Burbank oh, and places. Yeah. I've spent many half a day in a car going north to south. Yes. Um. So here's a big hypothetical imaginary question, but 
Let's see what you say. If money was free, so you had unlimited money for you and unlimited time, um, that might involve you could stay up all night, whatever, never have to sleep, or it could just mean you're going to live forever, whatever. You just make make what do you want out of this question. What would you do? Kind of unlimited resource yeah. of sorts. Um, in other words, what, what would my dream project be? Um, I, you know, I've always been fascinated by automobiles, and I uh, mm-hmm. I would want to design you know, the perfect high efficiency people pod, you know, a personal transportation unit. Um, it would be a a car of sorts. Um, but it would probably be electric. It would be extremely efficient. Uh, it would let you, you know, zip around, uh, um, you know, on the freeways and whatnot for, uh, with, you know, very little energy, very little, um, you know, no pollution, uh, quiet, you know, zipping along quietly. Um, it's my my vision is becoming already a little obsolete because we're at the dawn of uh, self-driving cars, which will probably end up embodying some of this technology. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, I always uh, you know, in fa- you know, I've I've done a few hobby cars in my day, you know, Burning Man type things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, I've dabbled in that. Of course, a serious highway vehicle, you know, is the kind of thing that billion dollar companies do because there's so many safety requirements and whatnot. But, uh, as long as we're dreaming, um, uh, yeah, yeah, that would probably be my, my objective. That's cool. So what's your favorite instrument that you own? Um, I think unquestionably my mid fifties Fender string master, uh, dual neck slide guitar. Cool. It's just a beautiful sounding instrument. It's got the, uh, Twin pickups, you know, kind of like the neck and middle pickup of a Stratocaster. Uh-huh. It's got that wonderful lyrical soprano-like tone. It's not the kind of harsh, whiny sound of a modern pedal steel. Um, it's um, and it, you know, uh, when you you play something like Sleepwalk, uh, dare I say, through one of our Steel Air amps, it, it really is nice sounding. That's cool. Um... So knowing everything that you know now, all the stuff you've been through um, all these years later, if you could go back and sit down across the table from 17-year-old Pat Quilter, what would you tell him? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> These are my couple, like, I call them Dr. Phil questions. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> um, well, of course, you know, I'd I'd be, you know, highly tempted to give the young pad a boost by, you know, and, and, you know, transferring a lot of hard won knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it took us so long just to get our feet on the ground that, you know, it, I'm not at all unhappy at the way things worked out. We could have been a player in guitar amps and that would have been nice, but, you know, frankly, QSC audio is, you know, an order of magnitude bigger and, you know, more, potent company in every way you know yeah more technology more more resources you know more reach uh, than we could have and then we ever could have done in guitar amps i um, agree yeah i love music and i love musical instruments and uh you know i would love to see you know uh, i mean the guitar as we know it as the electric guitar has become an instrument in its own right over the last you know 40 or 50 years so at this point in the game, you know, we kind of know what we're aiming for tone-wise, which is 
help me, you know, design things like your tone block and so forth, you know, because yeah. the target is much clearer than it was in the 60s and 70s where people were still experimenting and discovering all this stuff. Um, you know, I'm amazed at this late date that we haven't seen whole new kinds of musical instruments. Uh, when you think about it, all the ones we have are more or less hard to play because, you know, the performer has to cope with the, you know, the physics of the instrument. I mean, you got to, right. you know, reach your fingers over and fret strings in some in a place that's determined not by what you'd like it to be, but where the fret has to be to make the note come out right. And, you know, the piano keyboard, you know, is, you know, kind of a interface that, you know, ultimately bangs a hammer on a string and, you yeah. know, the spacing of the keys is, you know, you know, not entirely you can't you can't make it anything you want because of various limitations and you you know blowing a horn that's a huge you know that's a a difficult skill and in this day and age why can't we make an instrument where the instrument fits us instead of us having to you know wrap ourselves around the requirements of the instrument now that that's really interesting yeah you walk around at nam it's a lot of the same thing yeah, there's it's hard to imagine a new instrument. You see things from time to time. They're super weird and never catch on. But yeah, it's, that's a great point. It's almost that there's the problem is I think there's too many choices when you when when yeah. you start thinking about something entirely electronic. Well, gee, it could be on a tablet. It could be you know something you play like an air guitar. I mean, there's been. There's been air drumsticks and stuff. That's kind of fun. Right. Uh, you know, there's so many different ways. Nobody's really figured out, you know, again, it's got to end up being kind of an instrument, you know, a known thing that, you know, you can give yours to another person that knows how to play one and they could play it too. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that you got, that's, that's a tough challenge coming up with something like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the theremin is, was uh, a very, you know, it was yeah. an interesting invention in the 30s and 20s that attempted to, you know, supersede the, you know, the material aspects of twanging strings or, you know, um, you know, vibrating reeds. And, uh, um, and yet, you know, it's, you know, it's an interesting instrument, but it's ultimately, ultimately kind of limiting, you know, it can only play one note and, a little hard to get perfect pitch on it because it's entirely fretless if you will yeah i've always wanted to buy one and try to figure it out that's fascinating so here's kind of the last dr phil question for you so inevitably a guy like you with so many products you've had your hand in and just years and years of being you know somewhat of a front player and a lot of things that have that changed the way people uh, play music, use music, whatever, experience music, you know, one day you'll be gone. People will inevitably stand around at a NAM or whatever, or a guitar shop, or they'll be putting a PA together and they'll have their old QSE that's still rocking and they'll mention you and they'll mention Quilter. What do you want people to say about you? What's your kind of wish that your wish of how people view you and kind of their thoughts on you way beyond when you're gone. Well, uh, you know, I just, I kind of got this from my father who, 
you know, was very tolerant of us with our suburban hippie long hair and whatnot. And he was in the Marine right. Corps, which didn't go for that stuff at all. And uh, but he, you know, he was always open minded about it. I mean, he didn't necessarily change. He didn't change his mind, but he didn't cut us off, even though yeah. because we were going down a different path. Um, and so I guess I would hope that at the end of the day, people would look and say, well, it, you know, you always try to do the reasonable thing. Just just be reasonable. Yeah, that's good. So these are quicker questions. Uh, these are just kind of whatever comes to mind. You throw it out, okay? Um, so you got $10 burning a hole in your pocket. you got to go spend it right now. What are you going to get with it? Where yeah, would you go? Probably go to a movie and can't okay. quite do it. For, with my senior discount, I could still get in for 10 bucks. <laughs> yeah, slide in there. Switch leads into, what is your favorite movie? Oh, wow. Um, probably for its audacity, and because I'm a science fiction nut, the, yeah. the old THX 1138 would be my vote for, you know, top science fiction movie. Not necessarily, I mean, it had amazing production values for a, a basically inexpensive movie, but it threw you into a whole different world that you had to figure out and, uh, and you know, and, and make, you know, and it worked on its own premises and, uh, um, um, and, you know, and was pretty, you know, definitely, Pretty clear about the vision, uh, if you will. A lot That's of cool. science I've fiction. Never, movies. never heard of that. I'll have to check it out. Oh yeah, well it's a it's an I'll early it. George Lucas thing. It's an expansion of his okay. student film, and uh, it's it's really quite brilliant. You know, and it's one of those things you get you're thrown into this weird world. It's an underground world, and everybody's you're going to be amazed at how weird everybody looks. And yet it makes perfect sense as you slowly absorb why people are dressing this way and so forth. And uh, um, it's uh, it's it's a really, um, I don't know, like I say, totally different place, you know, like going to Burning Man yeah. or something, you know, it, not like anything else you've ever you've ever seen or done. That's that's really cool. So what um, what's your last meal on Earth? The last thing you can eat? What would you pick? Where would you go to eat? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. I suppose some delicious, um, you know, steak and potatoesy kind of thing. Uh, um, I got um, probably oh French. I suppose they they have their way with sauces. Right, they do. Okay, and uh, this is the last question. So CDs, cassette tapes. MP3s, vinyl, and you can throw an eight track for fun. What what's your uh, listening preferred choice? What's your avenue there that you prefer more than any other? Well, I'm really not that you know. You skipped over shellac. Um, I'm a sorry. I'm a, big 70, I'm a big seventy eight collector, but I collect it more for the music than the sound quality. I mean, right. let's face it. Uh, Old 78s, even when they're in good condition, you know, are not as hi-fi as LPs. And totally. I'm, you know, I'm I'm not one to, I mean, there were some of the early digital stuff was a little, you know, like CDs were a little bit on the hard sounding, you know, they had kind of a slight glare to their sound. But once they yeah. clean that up, I mean, let's face it, it doesn't really get any better than that. Uh, I can right. hear bad quality MP3s, but the middle or upper rate seems okay to me. 
Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm, you know, I'll listen to anything that's, you know, free, free of obvious annoying glitches. There's kind of a weird underwater effect that, you know, permeates a really low res digital file that I don't like. Right. Right. Okay. So you'll just go for whatever. Well, that that's the 20 questions. And this is kind of a point for you to give the listeners a shameless, shameless as you can get plug on what you guys are doing and uh, where to find all your info. And right before you do that, I just want to state, um, and I rarely do this on the show, but I will, I, you know, I spoke earlier about the tone blocks and the pro blocks. Um, they're the first solid state um, amps that I have ever truly I mean, I feel like I'm splitting hairs to tell the difference with some of the, my favorite tube amps. So I, I just want to congratulate you on that. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted you on the show is just to let people know those things are out there. And uh, it's fantastic. And I can't wait to meet with you and hang out and uh, maybe dream up some other ideas or something. But yeah, you give everybody a shameless plug. I just wanted to rep that one more time. Seriously, if you're a listener, you should check these amps out. You can pick them up with like three fingers and they're just fantastic. So, but now it's your turn. I wanted to brag on you and then oh, th you go Thank for you it. for those uh, kind words. And yeah, you know, I mean, back in the day in the thirties and forties, when the electric guitar was growing up, it grew up with tube amp technology because that was the leading edge technology of its day. Um, and uh, just through happy accident, uh, when you think about it, guitar history would be completely different if they had started with piezo pickups we would just be yeah. we would be playing loud acoustic guitars basically but the yeah. magnetic pickup its companion tube amp what it turned out to be able to do in the hands of experimental musicians it's all developed into an art form which is identifiable now and our mission is to give the working and you know um hobby musician you know, good tools that will, you know, get the classic sounds that everybody wants that are that are classic for good, legitimate musical reasons and, you know, perform flawlessly day in, day out and uh, be efficient and, you know, not uh, burden the planet with excess, you know, uh, material consumption and basically be something we can move on to into the 21st century with. And yeah. uh, we hope we'll have some fun along the way. You know, we got some interesting off offshoot products coming out that have That's nothing great. to do with guitar amps, but are still in the musical field uh, that you will be seeing in 2017. So uh, stay tuned, as we like to say. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. Yeah, so they just need to go check your website out and whatever, and just uh, I'm sure I'll try to catch you at NAM. And man, I can't thank you enough for. Uh, taking the time and being on 20 questions well thank you and yeah uh, quilterlabs.com we're big enough now we tend to show up at the top of a quilter search so uh there we, you don't, go. we don't have the ladies coming in asking about quilting supplies like we were <laughs> at first but uh <laughs> i get the occasional uh people stop by and they want to buy um like a gas pedal for their car there so you go <laughs> i'm with you i feel the pain that's cool well Man, thanks again, and uh, it's been great to have you on, and uh, have a great day, man. It's been a pleasure, and, um, you know, thanks for doing these.